time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646 716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. Folks, it's good to have you with us. It's Monday, May 21st, and we're broadcasting live from New York City, Times Square at the Marriott Marquis. We're here attending the Mortgage Bankers Association of America's Secondary Marketing Conference. It's an important conference. You really should be here if you're not, uh, for many are, and it's so good to see so many of our friends. So we're pleased to have you here virtually with us, and, and relating to that, seeing that the whole topic in, today is going to be about secondary markets, what's going on with interest rates in the economy, I've invited two guests to join me in the Hot Topic segment. We have our regular, Les Parker, who gives us an opening market update at the beginning of each program, but we also have joining him in a discussion about what is going on with interest rates the economy and housing, Logan Motoshami. Now, both of these have been on the podcast before, but we've never had them on here together. So I'm very excited to get their perspective and take on the market. We're going to get into that later on in the Hot Topic segment. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're grateful to have you as our listener. Our commitment to you is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. We're so thrilled to have our sponsors. Very blessed to have these folks. Let's start off with the MBA. Of course, they're here with us at the conference. Or we're here with them, I guess is a better way to put it. And we also want to say hi to ArchMI. They've got their opening reception this evening. I'm looking forward to attending that. ArchMI, the creator of the Innovative Rate Star program. Also, Black Knight, the leading provider of integrated software, data, and analytic solutions. More on them later in the podcast. Also, the Mortgage Collaborative, the power of the network, as well as Lenders One, the largest and oldest mortgage cooperative, creating competitive advantages for both lenders and vendors. Both of them, both the Mortgage Collaborative and Lenders One, do have receptions here. If you, it's possible for you to get to one of those or both of those, I encourage you to do so. Also, I want to say a special thank you to Velma, the Efficient Mortgage Marketing Email Platform. stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. Glad to have them as a sponsor, as well as KnowledgeCoop, which provides fun, easy training for mortgage lenders. Also, our newest sponsor and our first mortgage company is Open Mortgage, the leading provider of reverse mortgage loans and home of many of the top LOs in the market. If you're looking for great interest rates, great programs, great service, and a great company with great culture, you get a hold of Open Mortgage. Go to the website, openmortgage.com. Check out the videos there. I always uh, use them as an example of how to produce videos. They do a great job. Also, we just want to say thank you to Alice, Joe, Andy, and Alan for their contributions to this program. Without further ado, let's go to, over to Rob Van Raphorst for the MBA Mortgage Minute. Rob? Hi, I'm Rob Van Raphorst. Welcome to the Mortgage Minute and the latest news from the Mortgage Bankers Association. Last week, MBA released a new disaster recovery guide for homeowners that features information on how to prepare for a natural disaster and what recovery assistance is available from government agencies. To download the guide, 
visit mba.org slash disaster recovery. Also last week, it was the third annual Ma Action Week, a week-long event dedicated to helping real estate finance professionals become more engaged in political advocacy. The enrollment campaign has helped MA membership exceed 25,000 and close to 3,000 total downloads of the MA app. To join MA, please visit mba.org slash action week. And finally, MBA's weekly mortgage application survey showed that the average contract interest rate for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage decreased to 4.77%. Thanks for joining us this week on the Mortgage Minute. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate that update. Looking forward to seeing you here a little bit later on today. Also, I'll be speaking at two conferences. One, while here in the Northeast, I'm going to be going up Tuesday, speaking at Sturbridge, Massachusetts, to the Consumer Lending Summit. Check that out on the website, mortgageconferences.com. You'll also see July 14th, I'll be speaking in Portland, Oregon, at the Great Northwest Mortgage Expo. It's at the Embassy Suites in Washington Square. Well, Les Parker is going to be in the Hot Topic segment, but he's also recorded for us a market update and so here's the Mortgage Market Live with Les Parker. What do you got for a music parody for us today, Les? Dave, Loan Logic sponsors Market Logics Live. How can I be sure? How can bears be sure in a world that's constantly changing? How can bonds be sure where they stand with bears? Taking out 340 in the 10 year Treasury note yield would be a big deal. It's the beginning of the end of the secular bull market that began nearly 30 years ago. How many of you were even in the mortgage business then? Dave, no old man jokes like... Now you take my wife, please. (laughs) Market makers in financial futures options see no risk of inflation, nor do they anticipate accelerating ascent of long-term treasury yields. Before investors start running to exit fixed income assets, how can they be sure that the bears will stand against the low inflation headwinds? Investors really want to know. These views are my own. Go to LoanLogics.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. Thanks, Les. Appreciate that. Joe Farr, good to have you with us. What is the market update you have for us today? Mortgage rates rose this week. The primary cause came from the ECB. On Monday, an ECB official mentioned that that, uh, guidance for a rate hike may come before the expiration of their current bond buying program. And this was a bit of a surprise in, in that the bond buying program is expected to run through September and, and the ECB statement, uh, the official statement, led investors to speculate that maybe rate increases will come sooner than what had previously been expected. Bond yields rose in Europe and in the United States following that, that announcement. Much of that increase happened. The the announcement came on Monday. Much of the rate increase in the U.S. anyway happened on Tuesday. And that's significant given that many people read about the Freddie Mac rate survey. And I want to talk about that just a little bit because the rate survey this week did show an increase from 455 to 461. But I'm afraid that wasn't a big enough increase, and here's why. The survey that Freddie Mac conducts is done primarily on Monday and Tuesday. And so, you know, the big drop that happened in mortgage rates happened, you know, mid-Tuesday and on. And so the survey did not include that drop in rates, that drop in MBS prices or that rise in rates. And as a, an example, the, the survey shows a six basis point increase 
in rates, whereas the tenure, and, and there's not a direct correlation between the tenure and mortgage rates, but the tenure rose 15 basis points between last Thursday and this Thursday. So wanted to bring that up. An originator should know how that survey is put together and should know how to explain to his customer why, if the customer's reading that rates rose six basis points and the, and the uh, loan officers having to explain 15 basis points, you know, it's good to know how to support that difference. Looking at the economic data that came out during the week, you know, there was some that had a little bit of negative impact on mortgage rates, not a big impact. Most of the data exceeded expectations by a little bit, and some of it included elements that showed increasing prices or prices increasing more than what investors had expected. The housing data that came out during the week showed that home builders were slightly more upbeat this month than last and that single-family housing starts held steady. Single-family housing starts were steady, whereas the overall housing starts number was down, but that was totally due to declining starts for multifamily properties. You know, the, the calendar includes home sales, new home sales data on Wednesday and existing home sales data on Thursday, which will be important to see. Durable orders and consumer sentiment come out on Friday. The big news may come from the minutes of the May 2nd Fed meeting. You know, by now, you know, investors have reacted to anything the Fed did or said, but sometimes those minutes reveal things a little deeper than what, what people had understood. Those minutes will be released at 2 o'clock on Wednesday. In addition, there are a number of Fed speakers throughout the week, including Fed Chair Powell, who will be speaking early Friday morning. So that's the important day to pay attention, especially uh, when those Fed minutes come out on Wednesday at 2 o'clock Eastern time. So that's it. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate that update. Listeners, if you're looking for an easy, fun training technology, listen to what our friends at KnowledgeCube have to offer for mortgage lenders powered by a digital smart platform. At the Knowledge Coop, we work hard to create training that engages and encourages our audience. Once people are engaged in training, they are more likely to stay focused and retain the information that they need to know. So here's your training tip for the week. Next time you have an important policy or bit of knowledge you need to train, do it in short clips and make sure you sprinkle it in with a little bit of humor. Video training is highly impactful, but only when done in the way we've been conditioned through TV. Videos should be no more than five minutes, should get to the point and humor should be sprinkled through to emphasize the important points. Memories are more powerful when attached to an emotion. If you need help with your company's training, please reach out to us at knowledgecoop.com, and we'd be happy to assist. And that's your training minute from the Knowledge Coop, which strives for easy and fun training for the mortgage industry powered by a smart digital platform. Thanks, Nathan. Appreciate you providing us that information. Check them out, folks. www.knowledgecoop.com. That's knowledgecoop.com. Alice, good to have you here with us on the program. What do you have for the legislative update? Thanks, Dave. So for a couple of quick announcements, keep in mind that um, effective coming up here, it's uh, June 23rd, DU's release, there will be some significant changes to the bankruptcy and the mortgage delinquency assessments. This is a very big change. And what you need to make sure that your folks are all aware of is how this is going to work in DU. Essentially, there's a lot of onus that's going to fall on the lender, but in a good way. So the responsibility looks like this. When you have an inaccurate bankruptcy, for 
example, which you know can happen on some loans, you know that bankruptcy is impacting the credit and it's impacting the DU recommendation. So what's going to be in DU going forward is the ability to obviously document that it's inaccurate, but then also indicate in DU that you confirmed that the credit report bankruptcy is incorrect. There'll actually be a field for you to select this as an option so that then when DU sees the indication, the bankruptcy on the credit report won't be used in the eligibility assessment. And DU will then issue a message stating the bankruptcy information was not used. So because essentially the underwriter is instructing DU to remove it from the analysis. So keep that in mind. A lot of companies use DU as the underwriter. This is a classic example of you still need your underwriters. They've still got to understand what is incorrect and confirmed, right? I've got solid documentation to prove that the bankruptcy is incorrect. And then I'm therefore able to remove it from the assessment. So this type of process is being implemented for a couple areas within DU. The idea of being able to instruct DU to disregard significant event that's occurring on the credit report. So the areas that are impacted will be when the bankruptcy is incorrect, or if you have a bankruptcy that's due to extenuating circumstances, you want to use those shorter seasoning timelines. So when DU identifies a bankruptcy on the credit report that's due to extenuating circumstance, then same thing. The underwriter can then instruct DU to disregard the information. Now I'm saying underwriter because ultimately it'll have to fall at that level to have that documentation. Many companies, I'm sure, will open this up at the sales level. But for those of you on the sales side, you've got to keep in mind, I can't just play with that field, right? If I select something in desktop underwriter or uh, loan product advisor, any automated system, it has to be true. I can't play with it on an assumption or without having information because that's essentially mortgage fraud. I need to actually know that I've got an incorrect bankruptcy or I have an extenuating circumstance that meets the guide and then I can select that option and have it disregarded from DU. So I think this will make a big difference. Uh, you also get the same message for when DU identifies that a mortgage is currently past due by two or more payments or has been delinquent 60 days or more in the last 12 months. If you document that it's inaccurate, you can instruct DU to disregard the information. And again, there's a special drop down that'll say confirmed mortgage delinquent incorrect or, or field that you'll mark. So once you get this, you'll get special messages from DU, and I think this will make a big difference in our process. There is a heads up about a loan with a refer with caution. So this isn't going, when the refer with caution is being triggered based on other factors beyond just one of these three credit areas, then you'll still have your refer with caution and you'll have to follow the loan, the instructions, and DU will tell you that the recommendation was not issued solely due to that bankruptcy foreclosure or mortgage delinquency, but due to the overall risk. So that's a big piece, a big change coming in June, and you'll want to make sure you read up the on the bulletin and understand it fully. One of the other things that I think is a great win from the product standpoint is that Native American loaned second mortgage, Native American tribes that is, will be considered community seconds. So what this does is it opens up all those extra features for being able to get some higher combined loan to values and include those Native American tribe financing as just as any other community second. So that's a big win as well. 
So this is all coming out of uh, Fannie Mae's most recent selling guide update and bulletin. So you'll want to make sure that you read up and understand all the details there. So Dave, thank you so much and have a great show. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate that. Good update. Folks, we're going to be right back after a brief word from one of our sponsors. Are you using one of those expensive CRMs that your loan officers won't use? If so, then give my friends at Velma a call and let them help you create a customer journey that relies on the data and not on loan officer interaction. I encourage you to consider working with Velma to create a truly automated marketing experience for your organization. Velma makes marketing automation easy. Schedule a demo today at Velma.com, V-E-L-M-A.com. The Mortgage Collaborative was founded by former chairman of the NBA, John Robbins and David Kittle, and leaders at the forefront of the diversity movement in the real estate industry, Jim Park and Gary Acosta. The Mortgage Collaborative is the nation's only independent cooperative. The Collaborative provides its members the opportunity to meet and form meaningful relationships with top mortgage professionals and leaders in our industry. In a relationship-driven business such as ours, often who you know is as important as what you know. To learn more, go to mortgagecollaborative.com or call Rich Swarbinski at 440-552-0691. The power of the network. Truly a great network, and I encourage you to check it out. So anyway, good to have you with us, everybody. Alan, good to have you with us. What do you have for the tech report today? Thanks, David. There's been some interesting news lately regarding the investment that lenders and investors have been making on technology transformation. Few quick notes that occurred this week. Cloud Virgo announced that they raised fifty million to deliver a truly digital mortgage. SunTrust just released what they're calling their Smart Guide mortgage application. Notarize raised twenty million with help from different investors. And Devant Technologies is letting lenders on a pilot program see all Fannie and Freddie options. Did you know that in the fourth quarter of twenty eighteen, and we may have mentioned this, MBA reported that costs have risen to manufacture a loan to over eight thousand dollars. And while technology is a part of that cost and will continue to rise, projects that implement technology to add that certainty and replacement of laborious tasks are on the rise. So many are continuing to spend significant efforts around the point of sale and borrower experience. We are almost forced to start with some interest around the borrower satisfaction in helping them know that you're modernized and that you're focused on transparency to them and helping them close their loan faster. And for your LOs, you want them to have better products, greater certainty, and better turn times. And while many of us would like to work on the back end before the front end, I believe there's a way. And to make it there, we have to be careful of what I call roadmap risk. So what does that mean? It's simple. As you embark on your digital journey, it's important to stay aligned with the end goal and to make sure that the vendors you choose have flexibility. In the last year, I've been working with some really smart lenders that fit into three buckets. First, those of you that want to get started and you've been weighing out your options. You've seen all the demos and you're working to make a decision on which vendors to pilot a program with. Next, are those of you, you've tried a vendor only to find out that the project went off the tracks. Either your expectations were not met in the right time frame or features were not aligned with your expectations. And third, those of you who are building your own system. You've tried vendors and decided to customize that experience or build your own with your own technology team that you already have in place today. In all three scenarios, the common thread is that the vendor was not able to provide the true final expectation that the lender needed or for the workflow to be supported. And with so much activity in the market, it's hard for those vendors to keep up with everyone's requests or to choose where to make those adjustments outside of what they've already made to be customizable. So how do you avoid what I call roadmap risk? 
first, I think you really need to meet with your internal teams, map out the true path and expectations. Everyone's buy-in is very important. And I've met with a number of lenders that didn't have all the right people included in the beginning, not by fault, but they weren't well aligned. So it's very important to meet with your internal teams and map out that true path and what everybody's expectation is. Use that map the end result to work with your vendors, including your LOS vendor and other vendors that may be part of the workflow. When you define success, you will be driven to that success. And when you train your staff and you implement that process, everyone will be on the same page and you'll meet those goals together. Then you can focus on those future phases or those next needed features. By the way, let's give a good word to all the vendors out there. You really do have great technology and your investments and improvements continue to move at a fast pace. So there you have it for today, Roadmap Risk. Vendors can't support everyone's changes as quickly as everyone would like them. And if you have a good plan, well-defined and accepted by everyone, you'll have success. To everyone at MBA Secondary, have a great conference. David, back to you. Thanks, Alan. Really appreciate that update. You can get a hold of Alan at A-L-L-E-N at TMS-Advisors.com. Last night, Arch and I had their reception. I said at the beginning of the program, we were looking forward to going to it. I guess it was such a good time. I forgot that I'd been at it last night. It was really a good party. And I want to say a special thank you to our sponsor, Arch and I. And we've got Jim Jump with an update for us. Jim, what you got? Hi, David. ArchMI is happy to be a proud sponsor of the program. Today, I'd like to let your listeners know about RateStar from Arch Mortgage Insurance. RateStar makes it easy to choose what type of mortgage insurance coverage your loan needs. Quotes are delivered in seconds and represent our most competitive ArchMI rates based on the strength and quality of the loan application. That's the power of RateStar. Getting a mortgage insurance quote has never been so powerful or so simple. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, David. Jim, thanks so much. Really appreciate your sponsorship of the podcast. Looking forward to interviewing David Gansbury. David is the president and CEO of ArchMI. We'll be interviewing him Monday, June 4th, the Monday right after Memorial Day. All right, Prophet Doctor, I always love hearing your report. What do you have for us, Andy? Hi, Dave. It's great to be here on Lickin' on Lending. Uh, for those who listened to the show last week, and I would certainly encourage you to listen to the whole show from last week to hear Fannie Mae talk about the requirements for approval, particularly related to merger and acquisition activity. But during last week's show, I talked about the advanced finance and accounting webinar I'll be teaching through the Mortgage Bankers Association coming up on June the 13th. So today I'm going to cover some of the essential tools to understand the dynamics of price volatility and the impact on the company's profit. So in accounting, every month in, we record a mark-to-market of the interest rate lock commitment, the loan held for sale, the TBA short position, and the best efforts position because we want to adopt mark-to-market treatment for best efforts because we are marking to market our interest rate lock commitment. So you have to have those matched up. Now, if the embedded gain on sale went down from the prior month, when we look at and compare our financial results, we need to be able to explain what happened. Why did this happen? Why did the gain on sale from the prior month to this month go up, go down? So the best way to test monthly change in mark-to-market amounts is to look at both the quantity and the market changes that have occurred. Now, quantity is easy because that just is more is more and less is less. 
right? That's just that complicated. Um, if you have more volume, then you're going to have a bigger gain on sale in terms of dollars of revenue recognition. Now, the market changes is a little bit more difficult to evaluate, but I'm going to talk about that now. So if we were to look at the month in February, March, and April, Fannie Mae current coupon mortgage-backed security security price, we can then validate price changes month to month to help us better understand the change in our mark to market. Now, I happen to have the month in prices for the Fannie Mae current coupon 30-year fixed rate uh, security for February, March, and April. So at the end of February, the Fannie Mae 30-year 4% security, which is mostly going to be filled with four and a half or four and three quarters um, loans. So the 4% security had a price of 102-15. So when we look at that, we have to realize mortgage-backed securities are traded in 30 seconds. And so 15, 30 seconds is almost half a point. So at the end of February, the Fannie Mae 30 year was 102.5 as the dollar price. Now again, MBS is traded in 30 seconds. And uh, so that's called a tick. A tick is 132nd. And a plus is half of a tick or half of a 30 seconds is a 64th. So uh, a plus is a 64th and a tick is a 32nd. And we convert all of those to be a dollar equivalent, decimal equivalent. So lots of funny words with ticks and pluses. You know, in the, in the technology arena, we've got bits, bytes, and nibbles. So uh, a byte is eight bits and a nibble is half of a byte or four bits in an eight-bit environment. Anyway, I just think that's interesting. So anyway, February 102.5, end of March, the Fannie Mae 30-year, four and a half is at 102-19. Well, 19.30 seconds is about 60 basis points, so that's 102.6. So from February 102.5 to the end of March 102.6, the price went up. So that means our gains went up. That means rates are going down. The value in the TBA short position went down to preserve our margin. So even though we've got a bigger gain, we've got a hedging offset to preserve our margin. And then lastly, looking forward to April We've got a Fannie Mae 30-year price of, uh, for the 4% current um, coupon. We have a price of 101-26. 26 32nds is 0.8. So we have a price of 101.8. So end of March, 102.6. End of April, 101.8. So 102.6, 101.8. That means the security went down in value. The prices went down. So that means our gain recognition is also going to go down but we should expect to see the hedge value go up because rates are going up. So the hedge is going to go up and the value of the loans are going to go down, but it's all going to be this offset. We're always going to preserve our margin despite the loan sale gain going up and the hedge price going down and vice versa. So anyway, this is just a snippet of the webinar on June the 13th. Go to nba.org, education, and sign up. If you want to, you can read more about hedging on our website, MBS dash team.com forward slash articles just go to the mbs dash team.com website and you'll see the article sections or email me andy at mbs dash team.com happy to talk to you about this one of my most favorite topics all right dave that's my segment back to you andy thanks so much for that update 
Folks, let's take a quick break. Run over to John Maynell, Vice President of Client Services for Motivity Solutions. See what the KPI of the week is. John, what do you have for us? This week's key performance indicator is application to funded cycle time. Uh, Since the arrival of TRID, cycle time measurements have obviously come to the forefront, everything from looking at the entire application to funded cycle uh, down to sub-cycles or cycle time between milestones. Everyone wants to compress cycle time, and the beauty of this type of strategic KPI is that it can be tied to operational KPIs that track the tasks or processes within the cycle that contribute to how long or short that cycle is. So operational KPIs can be thought of as the cause, and strategic KPIs are the effect. Uh, And balancing and monitoring these key measurements really can drive performance, and this demonstrates again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, David, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. That's so true. What gets measured gets results. Please also have a partnership with Black Knight. TRID 2.0 goes into effect later this year. Are your processes and technology ready to support the new requirements? Black Knight, a leading mortgage industry fintech, can help with all of your compliance efforts. The system is continually enhanced to help lenders meet changing regulations, including TRID 2.0. Black Knight's Empower Loan Origination System offers expedited implementation timeline, which results in reduced costs and can easily scale to accommodate your business growth. Learn how you can get Empower now. Contact Black Knight at blackknighting.com. Great company, great vision, very, very significant what they do for the mortgage industry. Check it out, blackknight.com. Head over to our website, click out to their ad, and you'll learn everything about them. The data they have is amazing. It's a good point to think about when you're planning where to go into your business. Welcome to the Hot Topics segment. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, we're broadcasting live from New York City and the MBA's National Secondary Marketing Conference. So I thought it would be appropriate if we invited two regular guests that have been on this program numerous times, but we've never had them on together. So I am really excited about today's discussion. I respect both of these gentlemen tremendously. As they say, the data is the data. And these two individuals, while looking at the same data, usually come to the same conclusion, but how they get there is oftentimes as interesting as it is different. So we're going to be talking a bit about the unique things about the technical trends that are going on overall, the interest rates, where they're heading, both short-term and long-term. Also, we're going to look at what is driving the economy today, those specific drivers that these two gentlemen are focusing on. So let's get into today's discussion with our two guests, Les Parker and Logan Motoshami. Logan, I'd like to start with you. You have a way of looking at data that seems to be somewhat different from others in the marketplace. Well, here's, here's the thing with, with all economic data. They're, they're trends. They're things that happen over time. And uh, if, if, you look at a, if you look at data through an ideological perspective, then you're playing at a disadvantage to what the historical trend is going. And there's so many variables that I think you have to put into your theory that you, you cannot go into reading any data with any opinions, whether it's personal or ideological in the sense of where you stand with your economic theories. Once you look at the data, the trends are there for a very long time, you just have to almost be kind of pure and, and, and looking at it in that sense. And I think that is the most accurate way 
to, to be correct for the longest period of time because if something is turning on the data, it'll show it to you, you know, uh, rather than having a, an ideological perspective. And I think that's the difference. You know, my stuff is charts. It's very boring. It's not, you know, uh, provocative <laughs> in that sense. But, uh, but I, I would say that, it, that if you really want to do it correctly, that's how you should interpret data. If you want to seek the truth, you enter the room with no opinions. Les, is it possible to come at the data without any bias? I actually think you don't enter the room with a blank slate. You actually come with your biases, your, with your opinions about different things, but you have to be willing to challenge those. That's, and I think we're, when I hear Logan say that, come in without the opinion, I hear that it says everything's open. There was a book written back in the 80s by a professor out of the uh, University of Chicago called The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. He died not too many years after that, but it was, it was an academic book on philosophy. And yet, it turned out it became a bestseller. And it became a bestseller because the first part of the book was very real, and it wasn't, it wasn't a heavy philosophy book. The last two-thirds of the book is, but the first third was very open. What he talked about is that an open mind is one that is willing to challenge with all of their opinions at any time, whereas a closed okay. mind, a closed mind is one they've made up their, they will say they're open-minded to anything, but that's in, in a certain sense, that's an absurd, it's impossible to say I'm open to everything because, for instance, the way Logan analyzes information is one particular way, and he'll come to conclusion because he is open to letting the data speak. And when you are talking about philosophies of life, you have to be willing to challenge your philosophies of life, but it has to be, it may have to take an overwhelming amount to change it. And I think that's where we all have to be, is that no matter how foundational a philosophy is, if the data really does transform a whole approach to analytics or to a, a, a theorem, then you have to throw out the theorem. Well, you know, you know one, one thing with, with economics, I mean, I mean, economics to me is, is basically two sets of principles. It's, it's demographics and productivity. And there, there are certain set rules that have to apply to a macroeconomic set. And then there's other variables surrounding economics in general, like, you know, globalization, technology, uh, debt, demographic, <laughs> these things all, all form into it. The real good data people that I know, they look for flaws in their own arguments or their own theories. And, you know, they, they fear being wrong, where I see people, they don't mind being wrong for a very long period of time, but they're set with their own principal belief. If you understand that you know, you can be wrong every single day and you look for the flaws in your own work. It facilitates a, an avenue for you not to be surprised. I like that. Good discussion. Let's move into the direction of interest rates. What is the data that's coming into your view telling you about the direction of interest rates? Let's start with you, Logan. Well, basically, it has been the same story for the majority of this entire cycle, you know, uh, I've always talked about this 
channel in a lot of my uh, prediction articles, the 10 years should be between 160 and 3% in this cycle. For the majority of the time outside of two events, the 2012 Spain default fear trade and the bread exit trade, we have pretty much stayed in that channel. And now for this year, you know, we see a different set of variables as a backdrop for why the 10-year is now testing that 3%, you know, it's slightly higher. Inflation, expectations, oil prices are rising, lumber prices are rising, wage inflation is, is at cycle highs. Core inflation is, is, is rising, but that's more due to a rate of change. The PCE inflation is rising, that's more due to a rate of change because last year that it was, it was growing very low. But you have all the inflationary factors rising together, and still, even today, the 10-year cannot break out of a channel. So I would say that the bond market, the inflation expectations, everything looks perfectly normal right now. I think the concern would be if you, if you don't want to see higher rates in the short term, you don't want to see oil go to 85 and higher. If oil could go to 85 and higher, I think the 10-year could break above this. And then, to me, eventually it will go back down. In fact, I'm actually looking for yields to invert this year where the 10- and the 2-year actually cross uh, later on this year. But it looks pretty much where it should be. I've been pretty consistent on this call for, for, for many years now. Les, your thoughts? We've had a couple of years where volatility was extremely low. And we are still in that world. I thought that this year, by now, we would already have higher volatility. We only had one week of high volatility, or not even high, but it was expanding it during that time when the stock market was having its hiccups in the first week of February. Concerning oil, I think Logan's spot on there. My range on oil is 74 to 86. So 74 is the lower range that, that you could bounce in there, kind of test it. But if oil can get into that 74.86, then it's probably going to build a base to break on out of 86. I don't think that's going to happen, not in 2018, maybe 2019 or 20. But that would even be unlikely if the uh, forecast of many economists around the world saying that we'll be in a recession in 2020. So I agree with the general principle that we should see interest rates not go much higher than where we are now. I'm very concerned if interest rates go above 340 in the 10-year, because from my long-term studies of interest rates, that would break the secular bull market that we've been in since the mid-80s. So over 30 years of a bull market in the United States for lower interest rates, think about that, over 30 years. There are people that have, are trading managing their interest rate risk, uh, their managing interest rate risk that have never seen significant bear markets. Uh, 94 was one. There was one, a couple in the 2000s, but they were only for a matter of a few months, six months, a year at the most. Well, let's get into that a little bit because I want to continue with you, Les, on this. You had predicted more volatility than we've seen. Why do you mm -hmm. think that is? I think it's very simple. Uh, we have not had the great repricing that we need globally. I, I look at it in this way. I'm, I'm a big oil manufacturing PMI recession guy. I, I track that with, with, with the bond market for many years. You know, the, this really started when the Federal Reserve started to hike rates because typically the dollar makes its biggest percentage move before the first rate hike. When that happened, that crashed oil prices. So when oil prices 
crash, manufacturing orders go into a recession, and the emerging markets, exports are more important in their economies. But that dollar-oil correlation fades out. Uh, we saw the rig counts go down, and now that oil prices have gone back up, manufacturing orders have come back up again. Rig counts are back up no, nowhere close to the cycle highs. But w- what I look at in 2018 is, is, is this principle. The rate of growth of world PMI data, manufacturing data, has limits, and that is already starting to fade. The dollar is starting to get stronger. What it hasn't done is impacted oil prices lower yet. We're producing more oil now than ever. To me, when the dollar takes off or should go a little bit stronger, oil prices fade down. It takes manufacturing data down, and that will create the 10-year yield to come back down while the two-year and all the short-term interest rates are rallying into it. And that's how you get an inversion because we haven't really broken out of the 10-year channel yet in this cycle. Uh, so because we were raising rates first, uh, we got a little bit ahead of thought, so our short-term rates are rising. Our long-term bond yields are much higher than the world right now, not because we're a credit risk, it's because we're creating some inflation. You know, if you compare it to the entire world, we actually are, are, are seeing inflationary, not so much strong pressures, but, but, but growth there. But I think there's limits to what oil and manufacturing orders can do. And in that sense, I think the 10-year yield should break down. But that's based on oil not getting to 85. If it gets to 85 and goes higher, then you have all the factors to, to break above that you know, historical, I think the 37-year trend, you know, 340, 325, the 10-year, that's you know, there are a few basis points difference. But that would can break us out. And then you could see forced algorithm selling by computers on the on the tenure because they, they all they see is that a long-term trend has been broken out. That would be the fear, I guess. I wholeheartedly agree with Logan, Dave, what he just said there, is that yeah. if oil, oil that band, I, I look at it as kind of a band that's blocking out oil, and, and, and I, Logan probably would somewhat agree with that, but he is putting that 85, I use 86, same, same number in essence. 74 to 86 is what my the band is that I really says, puts the kibosh on oil. It's hard for it to break through that technically, and then there's a lot of other reasons of why it can't, the fundamental reasons, and that was what I think Logan was talking about there. When you start talking about you need a certain amount of manufacturing, positive news coming out of manufacturing for oil to break on through. And if you do take out those levels in in the crude oil, and when uh, Logan and I, I think, are both referencing the same crude oil, I'm doing crude oil futures and the continuous contract there. Is that same for you, Logan? Yes, yes. Okay. So I would agree with that perspective on oil. I think, and, and then he also mentioned the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve has been ahead of the curve on trying to um, reduce the uh, excess reserves. Now, the reason the United States had to take the first step is the U.S. being the reserve currency, it is the, put a capital T-H-E in front of reserve currency. There's There's a number of reserve currencies, but there's only one that is the vast majority of transactions basically 80% or more of global transactions are in the dollar. So the, the reserve currency in the, United, in the world is the dollar. And so with, the, with us being the reserve currency, we can't drive down our dollar forever. It's very difficult to do without us having a, fis, uh, a fiscal collapse. 
talk about the feds versus the economic data. I know they're, they move according to the economic data in theory, but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect. And if you could talk about that. Les, let's start with you and then over to you. Guys, I'm going to give one quick comment on then turn it over to Logan on that. This is a great example of how we started off our conversation about how do you approach, in, approach information. The Federal Reserve, you would think, would be the best in the world at approaching it or letting the data speak. And they may have people in the bowels of the Federal Reserve that are doing it that way, but that's not what happens with policymakers. Anyone that's been using driving policy by using the Phillips curve is not allowing the data to speak. So from my perspective, the Federal Reserve has recognized that because we are the reserve currency, they've had to start to tighten to be a little more disciplined in the excess reserves globally. The other three major of the G4, G4 central banks, there's only three other really big ones we have to pay attention. The other ones are important, but these other three are important. That's the um, European Central Bank, and then we have the uh, Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan. So they, and we refer to, if you add the Federal Reserve in that, as the G4. So the G4, there's a disparity between their policies. Um, they were the uh, last year, there was some movement of the other central banks starting to get on board with the Federal Reserve, but they have not had solid action to join in with the Federal Reserve. They probably are going to more late uh, this fall, uh, the ECB's, uh, particularly European Central Bank. There's more and more signals that they're going to start doing that. But the ECB has their own issues, and we can talk about that later. But I'd like Logan's comments on the the G4. Logan? You know, this is an interesting topic for this entire economic cycle. The Federal Reserve and what their inflation expectations were. You know, they always run off of a 2% PCE number in terms of that's their target, and they have not hit their target for more than 80% of the time in this cycle. And under their models, you would, in theory, you're supposed to see much more inflation. I would argue this. The Fed has actually done a really good job in terms of keeping their dual mandate on, on track. Their dual mandate is basically to keep inflation low and facilitate job expansion. We have the longest job expansion ever recorded in U.S. history, and inflation has been the lowest rate uh, for, for more than five, six decades out there. So they're doing their job. I think they're uncomfortable of having uh, the Fed funds rate prematurely, in their mind, low. So they're just going to keep on raising but I think there's going to be a battle coming soon in the Fed. If my inversion yield theory comes true, there's going to be half of the Fed that goes, we cannot let the yield curve invert. That's our job. We don't want to hike rates anymore. And then there's another group that probably think that, you know what, interest rates are still too low. We need to, we need to carry some more rate hikes in us for the next recession. And this is already, by July of next year, we'll have the longest economic expansion ever recorded in U.S. history. So... This cycle is getting older. It starts to look older. You don't really have an aggressive Fed rate hike cycle until they start hiking in between meetings, so we're not there yet. But it's setting up a very interesting backdrop for 2019 because even though wage inflation is picking up, 
part of my theory on why wage inflation is not going good, even though real hourly wages have had their best decade in five decades, if people actually look at the data correctly, is that when you have an older population workforce, ages 55 and over, their wage inflation index is, is much smaller than a prime age labor force. So if you look at the Fed's own data, people 55 and over are running at 2%, but if you look at prime age labor force Americans, they're running at uh, 3.5%, well above inflation. That is keeping the old school Phillips curve at bay. By the next year, you could have a debate within the Fed on, you know, possibly let's not let the yields invert or compared to the group that says we still need to hike rates for the next recession. We need to have more bullets in our bank. That's where I look at the Fed's argument right there. But in real terms, they've done an impressive job in terms of following their dual mandate, the longest job expansion on record. We're still producing twice as many jobs as we need for population growth, and still inflation is low. Core inflation and, and uh, CPI, PCE should rise both above 2% this year, but still there's no breakout in core inflation at all, and it hasn't been the case really since 1996. If you look at the Federal Reserve, Dave, I think you could say that they've done a great job, just as Logan said. But from my perspective, I actually say they've done a terrible job because they have not really supported the dollar to be king dollar. They've allowed it to drop. They had a drop in there, and that was basically at the latter part of Yellen's uh, time period. Uh, we're getting a stronger dollar now, and I think it's because it's under Powell, and that's sort of some perspective of how they're going to be more consistent. Janet Yellen was very late. Uh, to almost every single one of our moves, and that was was not healthy for the global market. Now, having said that, the reason I actually agree with the on the surface, you would say the Federal Reserve has done a good job. It's lower inflation, and we've had unemployment at uh, at good levels. The the real challenge to that is if you look at the velocity of money, if you look at transactions globally, we see that we are grinding to a halt globally. We have some early developing nations that are seeing some activity. We see some in various different emerging markets. But if you look at the developed economies, the advanced economies, we find that there is this slow grind that's going downward in total activity, and it's and productivity is not happening. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I think Logan alluded to that, and that was the demographics. Uh, there is no doubt about it. Demographics is having a huge problem. But it's also because of technology that's bringing – it's not bringing the, tech, the productivity the way we classically look at productivity because workers are just disappearing and they, can't, they don't have jobs or they don't have as well a paying jobs, or they have to have more jobs. And so we have low, we have hot, relatively high employment, but when you look at the amount of people that are still just have lost interest in it, or if you look at what type of earnings they're making, what type of wages they're making, that's really where I think the drag is. And I think that's what Logan was alluding to when he talked about the older population, the aging of the population, working longer and the reasons for that. But in summary, this low velocity of money, this low total transactions in the global market is a huge drag. And that's why I don't see interest rates going much higher than the level they are. I actually still think we have a good chance for significantly lower rates. But those, wow. the reasons for it is because of a 
global debt that's still way too high, that's got to be reset. You've got to reprice assets. When you've pumped up the value of assets because of debt, then that has to unwind. We've had pieces of it unwind, different areas of the world that have seen some adjustments there, but it just hasn't uh, really happened so, the level it needs to. So you're saying we are going to see lower rates this year? We, I think we're going to see expanding volatility, and I think we're going to see expanding volatility when there's some repricing of these assets. And the interesting, the almost ironic part about it is that this bump up in rates this time will do like what it did in, in January and February when it started pricking some of the stock markets globally. We're already seeing what's happening in Argentina, in Venezuela, in South Africa, and other emerging markets that are having real problems with their debt, and particularly because now their currencies are falling apart. Your thoughts, Logan? Are rates going well, up? Rates shouldn't go up, but again, that's predicated on oil behaving itself. The other inflationary items should be picking up this year. I have a different take on, on the, in, in theory, of, the, of, of what the job is. I, you know, we have over 155 million people working in America. Uh, the Great Recession lost 8.8 million jobs. If I took the last three recessions combined, put together, that was about roughly 13 million jobs lost. We have 18 million people uh, working since 2010 uh, out there. Uh, I, I, I am in the job openings camp where we just simply don't have enough workers. And it does not mean that wage growth has to really take off because when productivity, rate of growth of productivity is low and the rate of growth of inflation is low, just like Japan has showed us for decades, you don't, you don't see high wage growth. Japan's wage growth has been very weak as their inflation has been weak as well. I, I don't believe in the theory that people have been sitting home for 8, 16, 24 years not working or not wanting to work because wages are high. I think we, we have an abundance of Americans uh, working, but productivity has basically the growth is very limited and robots aren't taking the jobs and we do have an older workforce so there's limits to that uh, it impacts growth if you look at construction productivity over 70 years it's been one of the weakest productivity sectors in the history of the world and we cannot do things yet because we just don't have that kind of technology advances in regards to the dollar Historically, after the dollar makes its big percentage move after the first rate hike, it doesn't typically do much after. But what we saw here was that second leg up higher in 2016. So the dollar coming back down actually made sense to me. But we're in a, we're in a really interesting spot in terms of the world economies right now because the U.S. is about to break all economic record histories in terms of this expansion. But if oil prices fade, all those countries that live off manufacturing, exports, they'll get hit again. And I think the U.S. actually is running into its prime-age labor force boom, which puts us into another stronger output area where all these developed countries, they have no prime-age labor force growth. We do. We have the biggest age forces, age 23 to 29. They're, they haven't even started right. their household formation yet. So that'll keep the dollar strong. That'll keep the U.S. economy going you know, at some point you will get a recession. There will be some overinvestment thesis out there, but it is almost unfair the advantage the U.S. has right now against the world in terms of uh, uh, its reserve currency, its, its $120 trillion GDP uh, uh, financial net worth country. There's no real inflationary pressures that we can't deal. And uh, to be honest with you, I think 
inflation is not overestimated, it's underestimated, because we still don't have a grasp on how uh, the Internet has reduced prices because we're still are working on, the, uh, on methods to track that data. So I, I think it's the best of both worlds, and it shows in this long economic expansion that because of our ideological differences in this country, or, or whether they be economical or political, you hear a lot of shouting back and forth. I mean, it doesn't get any better than what we've seen in this economic expansion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you think inflation is overstated or understated? I think inflation is – there's always this argument that uh, the CPI and PC are, over, are, are, are not – are not accounting for inflation. I think it's too much, actually. I, I think there's, there's not a, a sophisticated model yet to show how Internet pricing has brought the prices of goods lower. And mm. that is something that uh, everyone is going to be working on over the next 10 or 15 years. But I think when that's done, it's going to show that PCE inflation is actually lower than what is being reported right now. So I, I actually agree with that. I do think that the, the effect of technology has not been fully affected in the way that uh, economists currently measure inflation. Logan, we're going to wrap this up with uh, this your analysis again on the housing market, home sales. We uh, the world continues to point towards a lack of inventory. You're pointing at other things, or you have historically any changes in that? What's your outlook there? And then we get Les's commentary, and we'll wrap it up. You know, existing home sales look exactly where they should be. This, is, this needs to be a little bit in a more sophisticated discussion point. Uh, purchase applications are at cycle highs. We've had year-over-year -year growth in every single week this year, but still we're at 1998 levels, which means there's no record-breaking demand. There's no strong demand like the economists talk about. And in that context, sales should roughly be flat to negative this year because cash buyers are falling as a percentage of sales. Don't be shocked to see year-over-year -year inventory gains in some of the marketplaces now. Uh, we're at the point where historically, post-1996, that uh, monthly supply gets lower, doesn't really go too much lower from this, and then you start to see some year-over-year -year gains. Some people might see that as a negative demand hit, but roughly it has been the same story for existing home sales, slow and, sale, slow and steady boosted by a historical high uh, average of cash buyers that should be falling. It hasn't yet, really, below 20%. But a new home sales is, is actually doing much better than I thought. I was looking for 2 to 5% growth. So far, as that 10% year-to-date growth. That is the area that I would be mindful of to see if higher rates impact that sector. But again, it is so low right now. You adjusted to population using a six-month average. We're basically still at the tail end of a recession for new home sales. So uh, I've always tried to stress that with housing. There is no record-breaking demand. There is no strong demand. Housing tenure has doubled. That's the main macro story in this economic cycle. Because that has happened, monthly supply has fallen down. It's not because demand is picking up because it's very hard for people to move up or the people don't have a reason to move up. And since we've been building bigger and bigger homes since 1975, you have a lot of people who buy new homes who are almost one and done unless they relocate their jobs or have a bigger family. So housing looks exactly where it should be right now. So it's going to be another $6 million total home sale a year. Housing starts are, are very slow, but as long as single-family starts grow. I think the missing story of this year for housing starts is that multifamily expansion is picking up again. We, we, we're, we're having post-double-digit growth now 
in multifamily construction. So that's helped the, the, the total housing starts this year grow. But again, single family is going to be slow for a very long time because new home sales are still low. Les, your thoughts? You know, Dave, uh, when Logan shares on housing particularly, but I think on all the things that he comments on, it's thoughtful. And what it's nice to have affirmation. And so when I, uh, one of the friends that uh, I had the privilege to engage with fairly regularly is uh, Mark Palin over at uh, Fannie Mae, and he's um, in uh, Doug Duncan's group there, Doug Duncan's chief economist for Fannie Mae. And they have embraced, uh, particularly Mark in the studies he's done, much of what Logan is by digging into his numbers. And it's nice to see economists also starting to do work in that world and not just having some of the blinders on that uh, Logan so appropriately comments on and how people do come in with these biases and then they end up missing uh, the elephant that's in the room. In terms of interest rates and where uh, mortgages are, are going, you know, mortgages have outperformed treasuries for the most part over the last 10 years. Mortgages have been fairly tight range, very low volatility. Treasuries, uh, like I said, 2015, 2017, low volatility. We've having low volatility so far this year. But at some point, it, we never know exactly when. If you go with the trends right now, the trends, in the technical trends are to higher rates. The technical trends on volatility is low, and there's no reason technically why you would be seeing it expand. So then you have to look to other arguments. And when you look at that in terms of where we will end up, I think that we still have a, I think there'll be some major repricing of some assets, probably mainly in emerging markets. We're already seeing some in some of their debts. We will, uh, in fact, with Argentina, which really is uh, is a problem, they just recently, they're now asking the IMF for help. I still think this overall global debt that we have uh, is a problem. It's a problem in the United States. It's a problem around the globe. Um, in terms of the cycles that we've talked about in different, different areas, there's different countries at different points in the cycle. A uh, number of people say that China's in the lower end of their cycle and getting ready to dip. I think uh, uh, Chairman Xi might have a uh, want to try and paint a different picture if possible, but I don't think they, China can uh, defy the laws of economics. So, so right now my so outlook is still think we have volatility coming on the scene. So my outlook right now is we will still see volatility expand the latter part of this year, and it's going to be with uh, interest rates falling significantly, which will create some panic. And then uh, I echo uh, uh, Logan's thoughts earlier that when oil, fi- when oil finally breaks down and we're back above the 85, 86 in that area level, then that and, – and probably as it breaks through 74. 74 is the lower end of that, 86. You get into that realm, it's going to cause more nervousness. It's going to increase more volatility. But it will also have an effect on driving rates higher. First, we're where we are. We drop lower. Then we're going to go higher. Thank you. So are margins going to improve in the business? Yes, no? Actually, I would not be surprised if in uh, Q2 where you're going to see improvements in, in margins, simply in margin, because okay. of what, what Logan was talking about earlier with the applications, the strong purchase applications, I, I think the mortgage companies, that, that is where, they're, uh, where they are really focused. They might see some pickup. I'm already knowing some of the customers we work with, seeing their margins improving and outperforming the averages. However, 
this volatility does pick up, say we bump up here and then we have a couple events happen, it's going to be hard for mortgage bankers to handle the volatility. It's, I, they are not prepared for it. They have 30 years, 35 years of, of now institutions that think this is normal. And uh, 35 years, in a sense, it is normal. It was normal for a generation. Yeah, well, yeah what's, established, what's established as normal? What so you're exactly normal. right. 35 so, years would suggest it's normal, but it's not. We have, at least we know that there are outliers and indications that we could see. What has been normal for the last 35 years changing dramatically? Logan, Les, thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday to join us to pre-record this segment so that we could share it with our listeners while we're attending the Secondary Marketing Conference in New York. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. See you there. You've been listening to Lickin on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Thanks for listening.